Solomon had 12 district governors appointed throughout Israel who acquired supplies for the king and his palace. And each was responsible for one month in the year. And these were their names. So he lists the names of the 12 advisors. Now, this seems to be a good thing. Okay, this seems to be a good thing. Solomon has divided Israel into 12 districts. Now, it doesn't seem... Now, you're like, okay, what, aren't there already 12 tribes? Okay, right? Why, why is he redividing the nation up? Is this a bad thing? Well, I don't think he's trying to redivide the nation up opposed to what God divided it up as. Because from this point on, the districts are never mentioned again, and it's still the 12 tribes, the 12 tribes, the 12 tribes. If it was meant to replace God's tribes, I think the narrator would have blatantly pointed that out. Maybe not said it, but he would have kept repeating districts, districts, districts over and over again. The tribes were organized according to tribal territory. There were certain people that were born to the descendants of Jacob. And they each had different numbers of people. So the tribes were not divided according to population numbers. They weren't made equal populations among everybody. And they weren't divided among economic status in any kind of way. God basically said everybody who descended from this person, Reuben, will get this land over here. And the land seems to be more based on geography, like who has hills and mountains. And Judah has a lot of desert, so I'll give them more territory. And is the firstborn. Nothing is equally distributed. Tribes are not equal in size, geographically speaking, and tribes are not equal in size as far as population goes. That's okay, though. They don't have to, because not everything has to be equal all the time. However, Solomon is dividing the people into 12 districts because these are the people who are going to be responsible for taxes, so to speak. But they're not going to write a ta- check to the government and send it there. They're going to actually, for one month out of the year, be responsible for providing the food for Solomon's palace. So rather than writing a check to your government, they're going to send animals and bread and goats and all this kind of stuff. And they're going to go up there and work and do things. And so it's a little bit different. So think of this as paying taxes, which you should. You should. The Bible makes it very clear. You should be taking care of your leaders. You should be helping out. Solomon doesn't have a job. His job is being king. He has to be taken care of. But in his wisdom, he seems to be dividing the people up according to districts based more on economic status. And it seems to be that he's dividing them so that one district doesn't feel more financially overwhelmed and taxed than another district. This seems to be solely for the purpose of providing the monthly food and supplies for the palace, and he seems to be dividing it according to their economic status so that no one tribe feels like, we have a bigger burden than everybody else because we have fewer people and we're a lower-income tribe. This is not fair. We have to present the same amount of work as everybody else. So this seems to be displaying his wise administration. So the first one was his wise way of dealing with the people, and this is his wise administration. Now, some people have argued that Judah was left out of this. They didn't have to provide taxes or the food for the palace. The problem is the last, some of the last couple of cities that are mentioned are Judaite cities. And so it's very clear that all the tribes are included in this, and they're all divided up. And so this seems to be displaying the wise administration of Solomon over the kingdom. 
Verse 20 of chapter 4. The people of Judah and Israel were as innumerable as the sand on the seashore. What should that immediately remind you of? Genesis, Abraham's promise, I will make you as numerous as the sand on the seashore. The promises are being fulfilled. They had plenty to eat, drink, and were happy. That word happy should be seen as content, satisfied. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates River to the land of the Philistines as far as the border of Egypt, and these kingdoms paid tribute to Solomon as subjects through his lifetime. This also lets you know that we should see the 12 districts in a positive sense. Because the minute he gets done listing the 12 districts, and they're each responsible for providing food for the palace, it says that all the people of Judah and Israel were great and prosperous, and they were all content. So nobody was thinking, we're being gypped in taxes. This hotel 12 district thing is a ripoff. I'm being cheated here. We're being oppressed. Nobody's thinking that. Nobody's complaining about their duties to the palace. At this point, the narrator ends, and I know this is like a new section of most of your Bibles, but it should probably be attached to the other one. It ends by saying, Solomon is doing extremely well in the polls. Most people are saying, yep, I would vote for him again. They're content. They're happy. The promises of God are being fulfilled through Solomon. They're being fulfilled through Solomon. That should be seen as positive. Then we're told that Solomon has everything that God promised them originally. Now, his kingdom has not expanded. He has everything from the El Arash, the river of Egypt, all the way up to the Euphrates. This is the exact same map that I showed you with David. It's the exact same map David. So all the green is what he directly controls and rules over, but all the purple are the people that he has subjugated. He's ruling over them, but he has not, he's not controlling them. He's not controlling them. Now, the word not controlling is relative. And the only way to know how much he's controlling them and how much they're free is probably to the narrator tell you, which he doesn't, or to go back in time and actually witness it with your own eyes, which you can't. So right now you have to just trust. In the context of everybody being happy, God's fulfill his promises, they have everything from here to here. Largely speaking, God sees this as a positive thing. Yes, we could argue, yeah, but they weren't technically supposed to be under the reign of David and Solomon. But yes, technically, God did promise Israel all this land. So them not being part of the, under the rule of Abraham, because they're not one of the tribes marked for destruction, has everything to do with how they're being treated. It's okay for David to rule over them and Solomon to rule over them, because all this land was in God's promises. The question is, how are they being treated? That's the question. But the narrator never gives any insight on that. The narrator never gives any insight on that. So right now, it's portraying everything as good. Verse 22, each day Solomon's royal court consumed 30 cores of finely milled grain. Now, I'm going to stop here, and I'm going to basically translate these numbers for you. So each day Solomon's court, this is how, so Solomon has so many people in his royal court. So think of cabinet and um, secret service and Congress, all that kind of stuff, which wouldn't be as big as ours, but all these people. This is how much food they consumed every single day. And remember, once a month, each one of the districts is responsible for providing this each day. They consumed 
1,675 gallons of flour. About thir- that's about 13,400 loaves of bread. They consumed 3,351 gallons of cornmeal, 30 cows. One cow produces anywhere between like 100 and 150 pounds of hamburgers. That means that's about 13. 13- 1,500 pounds of meat since the cow produces between 450, sorry, 450 and 500. That means that's about double that number from 13 to 26 hamburgers, 26,000 hamburgers. Okay, that's a lot of hamburgers you're eating every single day. Can you imagine going to the drive through McDonald's on that one? How many would you like? I need 26,000 hamburgers. Okay, lamb produces, then they were also consuming 100 lambs which is 4,500 pounds of meat. So that's lamb burgers. They were also eating rams, gazelles, deers, and well-fed birds. That's a lot of food. And once a month, Israel, each district is responsible for providing all that every single day. Yet, it says that everybody was content and happy which means the entire nation is so blessed by God. An entire district can fork that out every single day for an entire month, and they still feel content, and they don't feel like they're overburdened. What God is communicating, remember when he said, I will give you everything else you could have asked for. And he is. The point of this is not like, my goodness, Solomon, you're just wallowing in the cash. The point is God has given them everything he could have asked for. Then the narrator goes on and states that the borders were secure. All the people, verse 25, for people of Judah and Israel had security. Everyone from Dan, which is the furthest northern city, to Beersheba, which is the furthest, furthest southern city, enjoyed the produce of their vines, the fig trees throughout Solomon's lifetime. So this shows you that everybody is being blessed tremendously. That phrase that they're enjoying the fruit of the vines and the fig trees is a direct reference to the promises of Deuteronomy. God specifically said that if you obey me, then I will produce a land flowing with milk and honey and everyone will live under the fruit of the fig tree and the vine. What God is basically saying is that Deuteronomy is being fulfilled. They are at least obedient enough and godly enough, and Solomon's reigning wisely enough that they can fork all this out to Solomon's palace, and God has given them so much that they're content, they're happy, and they're blessed, they're secure. It is closest to the Garden of Eden as you possibly can get. However, there's still rattlesnakes in the garden. Solomon had 4,000 stalls for his chariots and horses, and 12,000 horses, The district governors acquired supplies for Solomon's King Solomon and all who were in his royal palace. Each was responsible for one month of the year. They made sure nothing was lacking, and each one also brought to the assigned location his quota, a barley straw for various horses. What's wrong here? Yeah, and he's got a lot. That's a lot for back then and today. He is not supposed to get horses. He's not supposed to collect them. He's got chariots on top of that. He's got horses and stalls for them. And then it says, and also the people's responsibility was to feed the horses. So he's made the people complicit 
and taking care of the thing that he's not allowed to have. And so the narrator kind of ends with that on that brief summary. And so he wants you to know things are really good in a fallen, sinful, disobedient, rebellious world. This is close to the Garden of Eden as we're going to get right now. However, it's still full of sinners. He's still disobedient. He's going off astray. And this is only a brief moment in his reign that one can say they're content. Because later, when Solomon dies, the people are going to say, we can't handle your father's administration anymore. We're dying under him. And that's an interesting contrast for the beginning of his reign when he has wisdom. Everybody's content and blessed. By the time that he's done reigning, they're like, I, I, I'm, I'm suicidal from the burden of the taxes and the forced labor and everything your father has done to us. That's a drastic change. A drastic change. And so the narrators let you know that things are good, but there's a potential here. Now, this is the warning. It's very easy to say, like, we, we, as it depends on your personality or it depends on the day of the week. But it's very easy for us to lean to one extreme where we're like, there's lots of great things that we're doing in our life and we're very obedient, but all we can think about is how horrible of a sinner I am and how I'm screwing up all the time. Some people tend to lean more towards, look at this amazing thing, I'm doing this, I'm doing this and this and this and this, and I'm being obedient here, and they've completely ignored sins in their life. And then next thing they know, those sins become crouching serpents that are ready to strike at your door, and you never saw it coming. And so what the narrator is pointing out is life is really good right now, and they're being blessed, but Solomon has serpents that he's allowed into the garden, and they're crouching at his door ready to strike. And if he doesn't strangle them or subdue them or dry them out, then things are going to turn out bad. And of course, the result of the story is he doesn't deal with them. He doesn't deal with them. Verse 29, God gave Solomon wisdom and every great discernment. The breadth of his understanding was as infinite as the sand on the seashore. Solomon was wiser than all the men of the east and all the sages of Egypt. And he was wiser than any man, including Athan, the Ezraite, and Heman, Kalka, and Darda, the sons of Mahal. Okay, now, we don't know what these names are, but most commentators agree that these are probably really famous wise people that everybody knows. Okay, this would be the equivalent of saying, like, he was wealthier than Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and Warren Buffett, and, like, and everybody would be like, oh, yeah. But if you took that to, like, China, they'd be like, what? Well, maybe not Steve Jobs and Bill Gates, but Warren Buffett. The point is, these are incredibly famous, wise sages. And remember, the East is known for the wise men. They're known for wise men. And the narrator is saying he's wiser than everybody else. So the point now is, we've seen Solomon's wisdom judicially dealing with his people. We've now seen Solomon's wisdom in administrating the kingdom. And now we're seeing that Solomon is wiser than men's wisdom than the wisdom that normal people will go to. But then he goes on and says, he also produced manuals on biology describing animals and birds and insects and fish. And people from all the nations came to hear Solomon's display of wisdom. And they came from all the kings of the earth and heard about his wisdom. So the last thing we're told, he's also very wise when it comes to God's creation. What we see is a ruler and subduer in God's image. He knows God's creation really well. He can deal justly with God's creation. 
He's wiser than the men who eat from the tree of knowledge are. And he can administrate God's creation in an effective, wise way. That doesn't mean he's perfect and there's not sins. Those have been pointed out. But overall, one would say he's using his wisdom in a really good way. He's using his wisdom in a really good way. So right now, where are we? Is it really awesome? But it's kind of like, oh, we're sacrificing at the high places. And we got horses and chariots. And there's an Egyptian princess in the palace. And he's got forced labor happening. This is where everything goes downhill now. Because those things can only stay not neutral, but seemingly not threatening for so long. They can only stay that way for so long. Eventually, and remember, these aren't just little things. These are huge. Horses and chariots is a major violation of the Deuteronomy Covenant. It's a major... Now, here's the significance of horses and chariots here. I don't know if I mentioned this. And, And I will develop this more when we get to Elijah. Remember, the prophet is the voice of God. In the Bible, the prophet is called the horse and chariot of Yahweh. When Elijah's taken up into heaven, Elisha says, My Lord, my Lord, the horse and chariots of Israel. And then when Elisha's about ready to die, the king of Israel says, My Lord, my Lord, my father, my father, the horse and chariots of Israel. This is significant because the prophet, as the voice and the word of God, is the military army of Yahweh. He is the horse and chariot. The idea is, you don't need a horse and chariot to fight your battles. Because if the prophet is standing next to you, speaking the word of God into your ear and telling you that Yahweh says do this, and Yahweh says this, and yes, this, that that is the horse and chariot of Yahweh, and that's all you need. That horse and chariot, the word of God, it's not that the prophet literally is the horse and chariot, it's the prophet as the word of God is the horse and chariot. And if God is your general speaking strategic battle information into your ear, you're you're, going to survive. We're going to see a story later where Ben-Hadad goes to attack the king of Israel. And Elijah says, hey, king of Israel, he's going over there. And Israel moves. And Ben-Hadad does this several times. And Ben-Hadad is like, I can't get them. And then he figures out like, oh, because Elijah's telling them where you are every single time. Because the king didn't need an army. He just needed the prophet speaking to him. The significance of this is not just you're not trusting God to protect your borders and militarily because you decide to go get horses and chairs instead of God. But this is a direct affront to the word of God too. You're basically saying, I don't need the word of God. I don't need the prophet as the direct voice of God speaking to me. I don't need to pray. I don't need to seek him out. I have a military. It's more than just a lack of trust of God. It's a blatantly disregard of making Yahweh your general. Making Yahweh your general. And that's an important thing to understand. And especially when we get to Elijah and Elisha, that concept and idea is going to be developed even more. And then we get to the prophetic books, it's going to be developed more there as well. So th- th- this is a significant statement because in light of that, you also know something is missing. The prophet. Nathan hasn't been mentioned since Solomon became king. Prophets have not come to him. 
The narrator is specifically pointing out he's collecting horses and chariots. And if you're a good Israelite who knows your history and knows your Deuteronomy, then you should also be interpreting that as, oh, and there's no prophet either. The prophet has been replaced with the military. That's another sign. That would be the equivalent of like saying, hey, we've got this really awesome pastor. And he's doing a great job leading our church. But he never prays to God. Well, how long do you think that leading is really going to last? And what's there that you're not seeing? What's already being, what weeds are already beginning to creep up? And that's what the narrator is letting you know. Everything's pretty great so far, but look at this stuff over here. And have you noticed I've never mentioned the prophet? Never mentioned the prophet. And even though he prayed to God that day, notice that he only prayed when God came to him. But he hasn't prayed since then either. He hasn't prayed since then. 